I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and you know, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. I would not have thought Dutch. Yeah, uh, most of it, you know, most people think it's like Asian or South Pacific, and that's because the Dutch controlled such a long portion oh. of that. So there's a lot of different variations of it. Different spellings. That is different interesting. Spellings. That is exactly what I thought. I mean, I knew, I didn't think you were from that area. You know, I looked at your Instagram account, but like the last name though, <laughs> just when I first saw it, that's exactly what I was thinking. And yeah. that makes total sense though, now that you say it. Well, that was unintentionally a good intro. So um, I'm Preston Stewart and Sarah Payne. We're joined by Josh Moy. I get it? Got it. Yep. And, and we're just, Josh was just talking about what Moy stands, mean, stand, means. Means, like, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the Dutch word for beautiful or attractive or whatever it was. And we're not even really sure at this point if that's our original last name. Really? So, you know, the, the first people with that name came to the U.S. in like the late 1800s. So um, a lot of times back then they would Americanize or Anglicize, you know, some of the more mm -hmm. traditional ethnic names. So uh, yeah, so we're not even sure. There's, if you look at it, there's still some people that live um, kind of where we're from that still do have that name. So it's it's possible that, that it is, but it's one of those things where it's a word in the language. So it could have been a nickname at some point and then it just stayed. So, um... Josh and I connected online because uh, somebody sent me a note and said, you should do a video or talk about this guy, Josh Moy and, and some of, some of what he did while he was a Marine. And now hearing what your last name uh, means, did your buddies in the Marines know that? Cause I feel like that sets up some awesome nicknames. No, uh, we <laughs> actually like never talked about it at all. And everybody always says it wrong. Right. So everybody always says they just assume it's Mui. Because you got the M O O and then throw yeah. a vowel mm. on it. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up, it was like they would just add letters to it. Like teachers and and all that would add letters. So it'd be like Mooney or Muji. Actually, in boot camp, um, I think I was Muji for the whole the whole time. So like you know the kill hat and all that, where it's Muji. They would just throw a J in there for whatever. And uh, all, yeah, yeah, nobody ever funny. nobody ever really asked what it meant, or they just assumed that was the name and just rolled with it. Yep. You know, well, I just read, and this might be fake news too, by the way, it was one of those Facebook memes, but apparently, and this might be one of those Mr. Rogers Marine Sniper urban myths, but <laughs> apparently the voice of Bambi was a three-tour Vietnam Marine, and like he was a drill instructor and all this stuff, and nobody knew that he, was, he never told anyone, and I haven't checked it, but I literally just read it the other day, he's this total badass, but when he was like six or whatever, he was the baby Bambi voice, with that high-pitched voice, and later became a Marine and total badass. Um, be funny to see if that's true true or not. Good luck digging that one up. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, I wonder no, if you didn't want to be made fun of, but I think it'd be, he should have been called Bambi if he was that much of a badass. I think that would have been cool. <laughs> you know, that's the whole point of it. Josh, you're not in the Marines anymore. What are you doing these days? Where are you, where are you living? Uh, correct. So I got, a, I got off active duty in 2008 and moved back to Illinois. Um, I was living in the west suburbs of Chicago for a while and uh, 
like 2013, I got hired with the state. I'm actually a game warden in Illinois. Oh, cool. Mm. Um, so I've been doing that for, is this, September was eight years. And uh, that's cool. In 19, I got promoted. I'm a supervisor now. So I'm in charge of like 10 other guys and we cover uh, Cook and DuPage County, which are the two most populated counties in the state. And then essentially almost all of Illinois' portion of Lake Michigan. So mm. during the summer, we're on the boat a lot. During the fall and winter, we do some hunting stuff. And pretty much all year round, we're doing fish stuff. I'm from Champaign. Like all my family's in oh. Champaign. And, uh, and we have some family land down south, close to St. Louis. Um, and my wife and I lived in Naperville for a little while. So we've done the full length of Illinois. But when I think of, of DNR, I don't think of Chicago. I think of farmland in the South. Yep. And actually, I lived in Naperville for a little bit. That's where I moved back to, was back to Naperville. And I was oh, living cool. in Wheaton and Warrenville. Um, now I live down in the South suburbs. We moved once we had the, the kids. We actually closed on this house the day that we went into labor. Like, closed that morning. She went mm. into labor that night. Why not? Um, yeah. Just do everything at once. <laughs> but they... Uh, that's one of our issues up here, you know, as far as DNR is most people don't even know who we are. When we run into them up here, it's city people. They don't, you know, unless they have a boat or they fish or they maybe hunt somewhere else in Illinois, half the people we come into contact with don't even know, you know, who we are, what we do. So it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. When you, when you join them, I know a lot of folks go from military to law enforcement of some degree. Was that part of your plan? When you joined the Marines? No, uh, originally I, I didn't have a plan, right? Coming out of high school, I didn't really have a plan. I knew that I wanted to go into the Marines and, and I had an older brother who had, uh, um, you know, went into boot camp and ended up getting injured a couple of times, got recycled a couple of times, and then finally got processed out. Um, so I was going to do that and went. What, and, what year are we talking, yeah. Josh? Uh, so I went in in 2004 and he is. He's probably every bit of nine years older than me. So okay, had to be mid nineties, I think is when he would have went to uh, San Diego. I'm just wondering uh, where nine 11 fits in with all this. Right. Yeah. So, so I was, a, I was in high school still uh, when nine 11 happened. I think I was either a sophomore or a junior. I think a sophomore. Mm -hmm. So we're about the same age. I was a sophomore. We're yeah. the same age. I was sophomore. I was Oh four high school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh four. And I mean, I honestly, I'm probably one of the few people in the world that I cannot tell you exactly what I was doing or where I was at when I found out that, you know, when we found out about 9-11 happening, um, I'm assuming I was at school. Yeah, I don't, I don't really remember. That's funny. It's, still, it's a lot, lot going funny. on there. It was a weekday. Yeah. So yeah, probably school. Yeah. But it was, I mean, yeah. I know people who were like, they were sitting in history class and they rolled in like TVs into the classroom and like, they didn't do that for us. So I don't, I don't know. I think that has something to do with where, where you were though. Like I was going to school in Indiana and they said the world trade centers have been a plane flew, what, however they phrased it. And I didn't know what the world trade center was. I was 15. I, I feel like I was relatively smart and, and worldly for a 15 year old. Yeah. And I couldn't have told you where they were, what they looked like. Um, a Midwest kid, I guess, you know, that yep. I same way. I didn't know what it, what it was but they did wield the or they played it on the we had school tvs in the corner up in the building and it would um and they played it but on, on like a two um two hour delay but we didn't know it, we knew it was on a two hour delay but like i just remember seeing i remember seeing the second plane hit on the what, live stream but it was like 
two hours after the fact. But we didn't know that the second plane was going to hit, though, when we were right. watching it. So it was like, it felt like it was instant or whatever. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure that that had, you know, obviously that had some play into, okay, now I'm going to do that for sure. It, but it always been, you know, a family in the military, and that had always been an option and kind of mm -hmm. always been like a, a thing that I had wanted to do. Um, and then if you're going to do it, you know, you might as well do the hardest one, right? Join the Marine Corps. <laughs> infantry? <laughs> uh, I was. I was infantry, yeah. Yeah, so double yeah. down there, huh? Hardcore. Sayers, yeah. Sayers if you're going to do it, go all the way. Yeah, hardcore. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's badass. Marines are badass, man. Yeah, sometimes. Well, yeah, it's uh, – but, yeah, no. Um, so you – Felt even in the 90s, you know, the whole, this, I mean, the Dragon Sword commercials, those are awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, they had yeah. some of the best marketing. Yeah. And honestly, even though Army was at least saying, be all you can be, I still agree with that. That's a great motto. That other crap with like playing pool with your dad in a cornfield. Yeah. When recruiting video bullshit, I did not like because Marines at the same time were slaying freaking fire dragons. <laughs> and then trans transforming into dress blues. Yeah, and it's all yeah on a mountaintop. Slick. Yeah, yep. totally slick. And I, you know, I yeah. think one of the one of the biggest problems that the army had with their marketing was when they switched their motto from "Be all you can be" to "An army of one," and that mm -hmm. like totally destroys the idea of the teamwork mindset. And like, it gets a lot of people thinking like, "I can do great things" instead of "We can do great things." And hmm. now they've you know they've shifted from that again. Anyways, army strong is what it was because. <laughs> I don't know if it's still that, but I know it trans it turned into Army Strong. Maybe I don't yeah, know what it is. I don't know what it is. I, I miss be all you can be. I just it's like you can't go wrong with that. And if you do that, it's gonna push yourself. I get your what you're talking about with the team though. Um that's real interesting thought. That's why you guys are the core though, right? It is really probably in a different way. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it really hasn't the marketing you know the ads the commercials and stuff have changed but the idea and the the history and tradition like behind the marine corps hasn't changed at all for as long as mm -hmm. i can remember it's been the few the proud and it's never strayed from that right you know, it's you know they they whether you want to call it propaganda or indoctrination or whatever you want to call it i mean you know in boot camp it's a lot of marine corps history it's a lot of stuff that we used to do and this is a legacy you have to live up to and I mm -hmm. think that really goes a long way in affecting the, you know, psychology, especially of, of 18, 19 year old kids that are coming out of high school and looking for something to do. And I'm sure it's the same, you know, with kids coming out of college and going into the officer's course, but that really shows you like, Hey, if you're going to do this, you need to go all in and, and this is who came before you. So you need to try to be that or better. And I think that mm -hmm. really does change a lot of people's you know mind and kind of get them into that mindset and uh, it's 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 really interesting to see i'm sure you guys have, have noticed it too is like it's really interesting to see like who i was before boot camp and then like who i was after boot camp and mm. now like who i am now because like, i didn't know who i was back then i and when i yeah. got out of boot camp i knew i was like hey i'm a marine now this is what i get to do this is what i you know this is what i have to do and like now as an adult and a, and a father and a supervisor and, and all these things that I am now looking at all the stuff that I learned and how that really affects the way that I interact with the world and people. And I think it's, it's like a, it's like, I don't even know. 
who I was in high school or who I was coming out of high school. It's crazy. Young. There's that, a lot going on at that age. That time period, 04, 03, 04, 05, um, I remember, and it's, it's, I don't know, maybe funny is not the right way to put it, but looking back now, um, it kind of sounds silly, but I remember the feeling I was on track to go to West Point. So I knew I had four more years before I was going to get out there and, and do the real stuff. And I had people, myself included, that thought these wars were going to be over. Like guys were saying, I got to drop out and enlist because I'm going to, I'm going to miss this essentially, which I know sounds weird to some people will hear that and go, what on earth is that? Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> did did, yeah. did you experience any of that? Did you have that in your mind? Like we got to go this Iraq or Afghanistan thing could be over any day. Well, and I think, you know, not to, you know, not to like toot my own horn here. Like I was a, I was the, the quintessential like high school kid who teachers always said like had great potential, but I was just lazy. And, you know, I was a decently smart kid. I had good grades all the way up like to high school. And then I kind of started falling off in high school. And I think a lot of that was the social aspect and, you know, you mm-hmm. trying to fit in, trying not to be like the, the teacher's pet, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. did pretty well in the ASVAB. You know, as, as far as Marines are concerned, I could have done any MOS. And I think the reason that I chose infantry was because this is happening now. I want to go do that now. And then maybe I'll change it, you know, in the future, I'll go, go do something else, you know? And uh, yeah, so I think that had to, or that had some part to play in me deciding on infantry rather than like going to be a helicopter mechanic or avionics or something where, you know, I was able to, I guess, show the, that I had the educational or intelligence capacity to do it. But again, I mean, I was easy route. Let's go be a ground pounder and you know see what happens so i like that you called that the easy route it takes the least yeah. amount of of cognitive ability i guess did you know well, in boot camp i was surprised well on that note i'm i agree with you that's how my mentality was um we're the same age and we just took different paths but very similar ones because and to me, yeah, I don't want to knock any of the other ones. It's a team sport. We were talking about that. But to me, the one job, if I was thinking army or military, I'm thinking guns and bullets and like barbed wire and mud and shit and crawling in trenches and shooting. And uh, to me, it was just, that was infantry. And that's all what I wanted to do. Um, and I just wanted to figure out that path of um, going in that direction. And, um, but with the Marines, isn't it true? Were you able to get infantry? Don't you have, to, I thought that that's something you guys branch after basic or something. Cause I don't know if I fully understand the enlisted yeah, side so, of Marines. So there's, there's some jobs that you can enlist into going into boot camp, And then mm-hmm. a lot of them are, you know, you, you can go in no contract and then they just show you like stick you wherever they need you. So initially what most guys will do is the recruiters slot you for whatever, you know, they have their quotas, mm-hmm. how many they need for each position. And most guys that go infantry will just get slotted for an 03. They'll go to boot camp, you go through boot camp, you get out of boot camp, and then we go to school of infantry. Now, once you get to school mm-hmm. of infantry is, and I don't know if it's different now, I assume it's probably still the same, but once you get to school of infantry, everybody's just an 03. So everybody's infantry. Mm-hmm. If you want to, there's like, I forget what week it is, but 
you go through like half of school of infantry or something. If I remember correctly, it's like almost half of school of infantry where everybody's just an O3 and you're learning all basic infantry stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they brought us out onto the, I don't know if your barracks were say, uh, set up the same way, but ours were like big H's. The buildings was a big H. Mm-hmm. So the courtyard on each side. And they'd bring you out to that courtyard and not necessarily a parade deck, but just a big, big courtyard. So they bring, bring everybody out to the courtyard. It's like after sundown, you know, we're all sitting in a thing. They have a couple of the uh, school of infantry instructors, like go to a different part in the courtyard. The one uh, lead instructor explains to you who is for which part of infantry, right? So you got machine gunners, uh, riflemen, you know, small gunners, uh, mortarmen, right? They, and each person is a, an MOS. And then they just say, go. And like, if you want to go be a machine gunner, you got to get up and go over there. Cause no they're only taking, yeah. Cause they're only oh, taking wow. 25 guys, you know, to be machine gunners or 15 guys to be mortarmen. So like, they just, you know, everybody gets up and scrambles to where they want to go. And, Interesting. you know, for riflemen, you want to be an infantry rifleman, you just stay exactly where you're sitting. And I mean, it was guys were jumping up and like everywhere. So that's how they split us in School of Infantry to go pick the MOS that you wanted to be inside of the infantry, you know, umbrella. Which is the one that people didn't want, where like they're, they got to like force people into that slot. So it, was kind of a toss up. Like most, most guys didn't want to be riflemen, right? Cause that's like, everybody jumps up from that. Um, but I think the most like wanted position was actually machine gunners. Like at least in my mm-hmm. you know class, uh, tons of guys went to machine gunners, got turned away. Right. And had to go be like assault men, right. They rocket assault men. So small launchers, that, that's yeah. Um, and those guys ended up, that's probably the best job they could have got because some of those guys ended up not being, uh, you know, regular, like on foot assault. And they ended up going to a cat platoon, right? An anti-armor platoon and riding in Humvees all day, shooting tow launchers. So mm. <clears throat> I think uh, is- Mortarman, Mortarman was like a pretty good one, but you know, it didn't really seem like there was one that people were avoiding, at least in my class. There's something about this- that that I love where it's just like, go pick your job and people scattered. I, I like that. Yeah, the they were getting this is at the um, phase two, the basic of what you're talking about, the advanced training. Yeah, yeah. So 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 we do our, our 13 week boot camp and then it's on the, it's essentially still on. You know, you go to Camp Pendleton and then you go to the School of Infantry or on the same portion where School of Infantry is. There's like MCT, which is Marine Combat Training. So anybody that's not going to be infantry goes to MCT, but it's all in the same little I see. I see. And then when you, so you're getting trained up there when you're, so when you're showing up to your actual Marine unit, you're supposed to be slotted as a machine gunner when you get there or as a rifleman when you get there. Yeah. So when they, when you go through SOI, you finish SOI. So the first half is all basic stuff. When you finish and graduate from school of infantry, you're actually graduating with that MOS of 0311 or 0351 or 31 for machine gunners, you know, 41 for mortarmen. So you, you actually graduate uh, school of infantry with that MOS. And then, you know, before graduation, um, they'll slot, you know, how many, how many they have for machine gunners, how many they have of riflemen. And then they'll, 
you know, pick out the units, tell you what unit you're going to. So then that unit needs, they need 15 machine gunners. They'll get 15 machine gunners. We had a lot of guys from my unit actually end up, or from my uh, school of infantry actually end up going to uh, like 29 Palms. And I think some guys even made it all the way back over to the East coast. My unit was half a mile away on Camp Pendleton. So like they just put mm. us on a bus at the end of the day and they'll throw us over there. <clears throat> not bad. That is not how no, the army yeah, works. That's interesting. I mean, the army, the mortars are different. That's a different MOS. But everybody else just straight up infantry. And that's up to the platoon to determine we're going to put this guy in the machine, this gun team. We're going to make this guy this, this automatic, the saw. We'll give him the saw. This guy's going to have the grenadier. You know, he's going to be grenadier. And then whatever. And then someone becomes a team leader or something. It's all well, and, pick and, and choose, so, you know. So that's how it is for basic like 0311s right so infantry rifleman like mm -hmm. i was um and some of that's actually changing now with the new uh commandants you know force uh readiness plan going forward into you know with asia sure. and south pacific and stuff yeah but but how it was so anybody that was an 11 would go to um you'd end up going to your unit and then when you get to your unit same thing so all riflemen right all 0311s one of you gets stuck with the saw one yeah. which usually is the smallest guy yeah yeah <laughs> and then somebody you know at the time the the way that the infantry stuff was set up it was obviously you know by the book the team leader was supposed to have the grenadier right he's supposed to have the m203 well they don't want to carry that so somebody right. ends up with the m203 on their rifle and yeah. so i was actually i was actually a grenadier um for my you know the entire first deployment uh and then team, yeah, team leader just had a rifle, and then we had the assistant saw gunner, right? The assistant machine gunner, which was a um, just another rifle. But yeah. the separate MOS of you know machine gunners, mortarmen, assaultmen, they would actually go to they'd go to a line. So just to kind of help clarify this a little bit, so Marine Corps infantry battalions are set up into around five companies. So we have a headquarters company, right? Headquarters service company. Um, then we have three line companies, so all infantry. So, you know, mm -hmm. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, whatever it was. And then we would actually have a, another company that is just a weapons company. So weapons company is, you know, mortar, machine guns, uh, cat, um, oh. assaultment. All, the, all those are in weapons company, but then the machine gunners are assigned to Fox Company. Or, you know, some are, are they're like, they're essentially part of weapons company and then they get assigned to the line companies as weapons platoons mm -hmm. so fox company right i was in fox company we would have a you know a squad of machine gunners a squad of assault men uh, a squad of mortars and those guys would be part of our line company and then guys that were like the 81 millimeters the mm -hmm. you know the bigger or bigger yeah manpower, portable motor mortars those guys would be in weapons company and they would right. stay in weapons company. You know, uh, Cat Platoon would be weapons company. And 60s then, were a company yeah. asset, 60 millimeter mortar. Yeah, yeah. So those were in the line companies. Company. Yeah. Those those guys were assigned to the you know the, essentially the rifle companies, but 81s and those are are all uh, weapons company. But so then you'd you have assault men that are in weapons company instead of the line company. And so when you drove 30 minutes down the road to your new unit. Did you know once you got there, 
you guys were heading out the door deploying pretty soon? Uh, not when we first got there. So we, I think we graduated SOI like February, which in California doesn't matter because it's still sunny. February 05. And then we deployed in July. That's pretty quick. So, yeah. So we didn't, we didn't know that the workup that they were already like, they had already started the workup. Okay. So we got mm. there. Um, I think we had like a week to, to get like processing and all that done. Get in there, get our stuff, get your rooms, right. You had a couple of days to really do that. And then like, we were right back into going to the range, um, you know, doing the company marches and getting ready for that deployment, which was in four or five months. Did, had that unit deployed already? Like, did you have combat veterans in the ranks or was this going to be the first go? Yeah, no, there were, they had, they were actually in the second battle of Fallujah in 04. Okay. Mm. Um, and they had taken some pretty good casualties, you know, during that deployment. Um, so some of those guys were still there. We had a lot of guys that deployed with me had deployed on their first, you know, so my first deployment was their second deployment you know, to gotcha. Iraq. So a lot of those guys were, were boots when they got to the unit in, in 03 or 04 deployed, you know, into, into Iraq in 04 and then came back, had a six months off. And, you know, within that year, they deployed again. There's got to be some value in that having guys. I mean, Fallujah was crazy. Second battle Fallujah was crazy. There's got to be some value in having at that point squad leaders, maybe that had, had been involved, probably squad leaders, platoon sergeants had been, been involved in that fight and could actually bring realistic lessons learned because the fight didn't change that much between second Fallujah and when you got, when you got to Iraq, right? Right. Yeah. It was, I mean, essentially it was, it was the same, you know, there were still, we were still dealing with the same problems. So there was a lot of stuff that they learned that we were able to do pretty quickly and, and counter pretty well. Um, a lot of the tactics were still the same. A lot of the, the, you know, the, the ROEs changed a little bit, you know, as they do, they, they're constantly changing sometimes for the better, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of these guys, like I said, I mean, it's within a year they had deployed back to almost the same area. Um, so we were able to, to use the knowledge, you know, the, the area, the people, uh, I think we even there, we had some interpreters and some attachments from like the Iraqi army and stuff that were still the, the same. Oh, so that was kind of nice. Not at, not at the platoon level, but at, you know, at the battalion level, there was, mm -hmm. there was some, uh, maintenance or maintaining of like the same communication channels and you knew some of the players and that, I think that helped a lot too. I was talking to somebody recently who mentioned an army peacekeeping mission to Iraq at some point shortly after the invasion, I guess certain units had been tagged to do peacekeeping because that, you know, in the great big master plan, like that was it, right? The Iraqi army falls, U S takes over and the next step is peacekeeping. So they, they showed up in Iraq with like soft skin Humvees in like 04 or something. Cause that's what their train up was. Um, but it's kind of an interesting conflict Iraq cause it, the, the intensity kind of spiked, dropped, and then spiked again real quickly. Um, and that time frame you're talking about, 04, 05, 06, all the way through 07 was, especially in the West where the Marines spent a lot of time in Anbar, that was, that was no joke. There were no good stories yeah. coming out at that time. You yeah, well, I mean? like that, yeah, that's what I remember. And it's funny that you mentioned like the soft skin Humvees, like the highbacks and stuff, because that's exactly what we deployed with. That's what we brought with really? us. Really? 
because we didn't, you know, we didn't have any up armors. We got there, we had to do our first convoy was 36 hours to get over to our AO um, from, you know, from uh, where we landed in to get to the AO that we were going to be working over on the, you know, in, in Anbar. And part of that was some guys split off to go to TQ to get up armored Humvees because we didn't have any. So they had to go to, uh, how was it, Takatum, I think is how you say it. So they had to go up there, get a bunch of Humvees. We stole some Humvees from the army. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, dropped our, our high backs and stuff off and grabbed these up armored Humvees and took those on with us. And then when we were done, we dropped it back off and put our stuff back on the plane and left. Jesus. Interesting. It's crazy to you think know, about I think, that. Yeah. I think part of the, part of the reason that our deployment was set up that way or that we had brought things that way is because we weren't, we were not initially tasked as a unit to go into Iraq, right? We were on a, we were on a Westpac. I was on a oh. Mew. We were, we went to, you know, Egypt. We did Operation Bright Star in Egypt. We did some training in Australia. We went to Greece, you know, we went to all these places. And then all of a sudden we get a call that says, Hey, uh, this unit's doing this thing. They need you guys to come and, you know, you're going to be a, a reserve force. And then we went and didn't have quite the right equipment to do it. So we had to, you know, when we got there, we had to grab whatever we could as far as the up armors and that. And, kind of hard to fit all those on a small ship so you guys were you you were supposed to be a reserve force when you got there so we were we were the i don't know if reserve force is the correct term but so three six who is the uh east coast unit the sister unit that we worked with during like operation um steel curtain it was their operation mm-hmm. so we were just there as a you know assisting unit we were assigned to second um uh marine expeditionary force at the time and you know got assigned under them even though we were a first marine division unit you know like that's who was in charge that's who we got assigned under and so we worked with them and ended up about halfway through the uh steel curtain stuff when three six kind of solidified their position on the north side of the river there uh we then stopped being a a, you know an assisting force and became like a main effort so it was like Really weird transition there, but yeah, originally we were we were only supposed to be there to help them, and I think in total, we may have only been in country something like seventy two or seventy five days. You, you only were really? in country seventy five days. I think so. Okay. I think we wow. were we were from uh, from October. I want to say it's early October of two thousand five to right after Christmas. And like right after Christmas, we, we got back on ship and we left again. Holy cow. I remember doing I remember doing Christmas at uh, uh, I think it was Camp Ripper, uh, you know, on Al Saad there. Isn't that the best way to use Marines though? Kind of in that fashion, I would think. Yeah, I just would like think so. Stir the hornet's nest, release them, bring them back. <laughs> um, I mean, that's how Ranger Battalion works. Similar way, you know. Yeah, and and in, you know we. We did, I think, what they wanted us to do. We, you know, we completed the mission that we were supposed to complete and then back on ship and back to the training and stuff that we were supposed to do beforehand. And obviously, you know, a little bit, a little bit worse for wear, but made it, made so, it, you know. Yeah. But obviously those times, the trade-off is those aren't fun days. No. And it was a lot of, 
you know, I used to I used to hate like when we'd come back, I would I would definitely hate like going to the chow hall and like walking around in the in the the camps and stuff. The Air Force had the best ones, you know, <laughs> obviously. But you know, when you go, we'd go to a base and they'd have, you know, we I remember in Al Kaim, which was like a just outside of like big train station down there in that region. And we had gone to this base, they had a little PX, they had this, you know, we had to take a bus to the chow hall. We, we literally slept on the flight line a couple of nights, like under our trucks and stuff to stay out of the dust. I, mm-hmm. we, just, we were there and there really wasn't a place for us. So it's one of those things where, yeah, obviously it's a combat zone. We're not expecting like a Hilton or anything crazy like that, but it's like, we would get to the, some of these spots and it's like, you know, it's almost as if the units that we were there to help didn't really expect us to be there right like nobody knew that we were coming or nobody knew that this was happening because there was nowhere for us to go so we sleep under the trucks or we'd sleep in the trucks or we'd sleep out on the flight line or you know was there animosity then with those units like you guys talk about that yeah uh i mean not necessarily with like other regular units with obviously with radio battalions because there's always a thing between infantry and, and radio but um you know, for the most part, it was like, man, these guys have it really, really nicely. And we just spent the last two weeks, like, picking dust out of, you know, everywhere. S- you know, sleeping on the ground, sleeping outside. I remember uh, we, we were in one of these towns and we had laid down. It was an unfinished house that we had, you know, occupied. And it still had, like, a rebar foundation grid. Like, they were going to pour the foundation. And there were stacks of, like, the ready-mix concrete bags. And we just mm-hmm. piled a bunch of those on the floor and made beds out of, you know, concrete bags to sleep on because it was better than sleeping on the, the rebar, you know? So awesome. we, we, those we are the most these... proud sleeps ever though. <laughs> just knowing you're better than everybody else. Yeah. So we'd have to, we'd have to, you know, we'd do that. And then we'd go back to like a base to, you know, rearm or refit or whatever it was and be like, man, these guys got it really nice. What a bunch of jerks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, being in attachment sucks. And that's what you guys were. It sounds like. Yeah. You, it sucks. Um, I agree. I got attached one time for like a month to a different company and just that in the same battalion and they didn't know how to use us. Same thing, same battalion. And it's just like, it's not the same because everyone's protecting their own and trying to hoard resources. And there's, you know, yep. you had to steal your home beef. <laughs> well, we, we didn't, I mean, technically appropriate statute of limitations. I think you're good. If I remember, I should say a flyer. <laughs> that's the proper, if, if I remember the company Gunny's uh, information, it was that when they went, right, they had signed out X amount of Humvees. You know, you go through with the guy at the motor pool and you check off the list, the numbers, whatever the numbers are. But then there was like a whole section of Humvees that weren't on the list, had no, like they were there, they were serialized, but they weren't on that guy's list. So we may have went off with a couple of those too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody's well, going to miss them because nobody knows they're there. So Exactly. That's the nature of those deals, but it's, yeah, some personality dynamics for sure. When it's, um, I don't know, we've, I, Stewie keeps mentioning about being aggressive. I thought it was very like, intent, like very aggressive, very, I don't want to say hateful, but like, and I don't even say competitive, but it was very close circled. Everybody was very tight circled, even with the companies against the battalion and other units, even in the brigade yeah, we, for us, very competitive, like, when we, we were on, like anybody. Uh, when we were on Al-Assad, like on the airbase for the, the short amount of time, I think we, in total, we probably only did maybe two or three weeks 
over that whole period where we were actually on Alice, like inside the wire at Alistair Air Base. And I don't remember talking to anybody except guys from my unit when we would go to like the chow hall or we'd go to the PX, like mm-hmm. nobody, right? You're same thing. Like nobody really wanted right. to talk to anybody else. Uh, yeah, it was kind of weird. I guess I, I never really thought about it, you know, I guess before, but looking back at it, it's like, yeah, we didn't really interact with anybody else, you know, any other military guys or anything. We dealt with the, uh, we used to hang out and talk with the Nigerian um, guards that were there on Al-Assad though. Those guys were All cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. Those guys were cool. They were, you know, they were essentially, I don't know what their real job was as part of like the international assistance force, but I think it was literally just to police the bases, you know, make yeah. sure that people aren't, the army and Marines aren't fighting and nobody's, you know, beating each other up in the street. Like that was kind of their job. Nobody's stealing, nobody's stealing Humvees, you know, I got you. Yeah. They were super cool. Yeah. Um, I think it became more common to outsource that security. The, I think one of the reasons it's hard to, to tell the story about things that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan is it's, it's murky and like there's different elements you're fighting at different times in the country. But like, I'll try to set the stage a little bit to kind of the Anbar area. So either one of you guys correct me because I'm going top of mind here. But Anbar is western Iraq, west of Baghdad. And there's something called the Euphrates River Valley that runs through Anbar, west to east, I believe. In this area, you've got places like Ramadi and Fallujah. And it, it kind of funnels up into Syria where a lot of foreign fighters are coming through, which is one of the reasons that the fighting in Ramadi, Fallujah, and that whole valley was pretty nasty is it wasn't all you know disaffected Iraqi citizens that were just maybe fighting for their freedom or um, maybe had a bad experience with Americans so they picked up a weapon or buried an IED there were a lot of foreign fighters well-trained foreign fighters um, and for a, a big stretch of time al-Qaeda in Iraq which were you know there's probably a better way to put this but professionals uh, well-trained well-equipped well-funded and you guys, if I'm not mistaken, with Steel Curtain, you were right up there on the Syrian border, which probably means you were going toe-to-toe with al-Qaeda. Is that accurate? Well, and, and that was actually the goal, I think, of that entire operation. You know, when you look at, some, you know, when you look at commander's intent, whether it's the battalion or it was the, um, you know, Iraqi assistance force, the goal was to retake that area because we had you know the military had taken it and lost it and taken it and lost it a few times before that i don't want to point any fingers but the last people that had it happened to be an army unit and you know you just with with resources the way they are you got to pool your resources and with you know fallujah and ramadi and those taking so much effort it was you pull back from some of those more rural areas and what i guess kind of happened in the meantime was there was nobody kind of regulating that area. So some of the towns that we had gone into, you know, they hadn't had regular shipments of like food and grains and, you know, stuff that they would need to survive. I mean, they had, they were, the logistics of those areas were just completely shot. They were either cut off by us from the East or they were cut off by, you know, Al Qaeda and and these other fighters from the West. So they were essentially stuck in a no man's land and our goal was to drop us on that side at the Syrian border, work our way back towards the east, you know, towards American forces and kind of push all those fighters in between us so that they didn't have a, anywhere to go. 
uh, it worked. Mm. I think it worked great. It's looking for um, a fight. I mean, you were, you were, you yeah. were picking a fight. Yeah. That, that was the goal. We had to retake that area. And the, the best way to do that was to cut them off at the Syrian border and everybody that's still in the country, push them back towards our own guys. Please call. You say please west call. To east. Yeah. West to yeah. east. Yeah. West to east. It's like hammer anvil stuff. Yep. Did that turn connect they, pretty quick? Was that, it seems like, I don't know. You know, looking back at it, it doesn't really like, doesn't feel like it, but I think we we took our, our very first casualty was um, I think we had one in October it was a vehicle accident was was the first you know actual casualty for the company mm-hmm. um, but you know our first like combat casualty was actually I, I believe the very first one was Major Ray Mendoza who was our echo company commander. A, you know, a giant of a man um, on a mine. And I mean, that was literally minutes after we stepped off, you know, to Holy start God. the actual fight. Yeah. So, I mean, it was the first day really, you know, we, we got dropped off in the middle of the desert. You could see the Syrian border. You could, we actually, you could see, um, I don't think there were tanks. They were like serious version of like a, like a Bradley or like a, a LAV or something, right? Mm-hmm. You could see them patrolling the, you know, the hillside on the Syrian side. And I'm sure they were doing the same thing we were. Like, we're just looking at each other through like binos or, you know. Yeah. Look at those guys. Like, oh, yeah. what is that? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we, you know, got there um, the day and, and, you know, early in the morning we stepped off and had that first casualty within the first couple of minutes. And then it was like, all right, well, this is real now. Um. But, you know, as far as combat went in Iraq, it was really intense for like five minutes and then just hours of nothing. You know, we I say nothing, but it's like hours of us, you know, clearing houses and, and kicking in doors and throwing flashbangs and, and prepping buildings and all this. And like and then you'd get into another firefight or somebody. You'd go a few hours with nothing, but like guys on the far end of the phase line or whatever are getting fight after fight after fight. And then you'd get into a fight and they'd have nothing for hours, right? You'd, you'd get into fight after fight after fight. So it was like, I don't know, everybody think like in the movies, right? I'm sure this, every, every combat veteran probably says the same thing. It's like the movies make it look like super cool, but it's just, you get five or 10 minutes of like really intense fighting. And then it's just weeks of just boredom. But I feel like Sayer and I did not deploy to a very urban area. There were houses there, but we were just not clearing room to room at all. It feels like that would be such an emotional drain, knowing that every single door could turn into a five, ten minute or more just chaotic fight. Well, they, um, think... Real quick, I want to mention on the house to house part, you mentioned the mine with uh, Major Mendoza, which, by the way, I'm, I went to Ohio State. He's an Ohio State grad. He's like a legend there. They've yep. been to haul after him. He was a he, he was like a four-year letterman in wrestling. I think he was like an Olympic. I think he like made the team or was an alternate, something like that. So, and he would have been killed. I would have been like a sophomore there, you know, at that yeah. time um, or freshman. I can't remember. But um, so I, I, I definitely know that name. The, uh, but and you mentioned he stepped on the mine. Is that going, like, what type of mine are we talking about? Are they doing houseborns? Is that a threat tripwires? What does that look like when you're doing all of this stuff? So I think, and I don't know. I don't know how accurate this was. I mean, he was a big guy, but 
the information that that we had at the time and that i think still is the maybe the urban legend here is that it was actually an at mine and this was mm -hmm. like yeah you know anti-tank yeah yeah and i don't know how big you have to be to set that off but if a man can do it then he would have been the guy to do it mm -hmm. um right. you know i mean he just just built like a brick house big dude and the you know the area that we started in wasn't an urban area we you know we had drove out to the middle of the desert and parked and had to walk into that first section so mm. we're I'm, I'm sure that there's i don't know if i have any pictures of it uh you know in the post that i was doing last year but you know there's parts where like everybody's kind of below this berm out in the middle of the desert and it's dawn and i mean that's really what it looked like we probably walked for a couple of miles before we really hit that first town um in uh Huseba, which was, you know, that, that far west side. Are you walking on road staggered column? Are you walking through fields? Are you bounding? Like, well, how are you guys doing we, this movement? The initial step off was, uh, um, so the three, so we had it in phase lines, but each company kind of walked their own section. And the initial, mm -hmm. the initial step was uh, column, staggered columns. And then once we got to, you know, once everybody kind of got out of the berm, and the, the low-lying area that we were in, what they call them, wadis, I think they call them out there. Yeah. Once, once we get out, you know, into the actual, like, flat ground desert, then it was kind of, you know, online or as much online as you can get because the idea was to show force at that point. Yeah. Like, look at all the people that we have and then go through that first initial town because the, the intel was that we didn't have, you know, there wasn't anybody in that portion. It was a border town. It wasn't supposed to be... You know, and then, of course, we get into the actual areas that we, we have to clear with three six on one side and us on the other side. And we ended up in this area called the, the 440 district, which was a uh, urban planned 440 house square. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was nonstop, you know, clearing rooms, clearing buildings, clearing houses, just nonstop for the you know, hours, days, I don't even know how long we were there. Um, and that one was, you know, every couple of minutes, you somebody would start shooting at something or somebody would start getting shot at or the helicopter would go and like had to take down a water tower. And there was just stuff happening all over the place when the initial intel was that it probably wasn't going to be, you know, there, there wasn't supposed to be a whole lot there. I'm in a, I'm in a hotel at Fort Sill right now. And uh, I'm thinking when, when it comes to urban combat, I think a lot of people think of, like this now becomes the battleground and there's every room on every floor could have somebody in the corner waiting with, with a, a rifle to, to kill the person who walks in the door. That by itself is a, an incredible headache to clear even a house, let alone a hotel. But that's not getting into when the enemy has time to build defensive positions and put a few sandbags in or cut holes in the wall they're going to shoot through. What was it like? Did you guys, what, were they hasty defensive positions or had these guys dug in in some areas? We, so most of it, you know, especially the first sections, right? The Huseba, Carabola, uh, the Triangle. Um, a lot of that was kind of hasty positions, right? They, they didn't really do anything to the houses. They just happened to be in them. Sure. You know, a lot of the, uh, the ones that I can remember, you know, clearly, clearly, uh, a lot of those guys were on the roofs. And a lot of those buildings were kind of set up the same way where the houses were kind of cookie cutter 
from one another. You know, it's a couple of rooms mm -hmm. on the bottom floor. If it had a second floor, there were a couple of rooms, but there was almost always a stairway to the roof with a mm -hmm. you know a little door um, or a little you know a little outcropping or whatever up from the roof that had a door on it. So a lot of times they'd be in that. You know, they'd be in that doorway or like just inside the doorway, trying to shoot out from that where they could see, but still kind of be in cover. Um, it didn't seem like they really wanted to fight inside the houses very much, which was great because we didn't really want to fight inside the houses. But, you know, the, the way that the stuff was designed there, it was kind of all designed the same. So once we'd gone through a couple of handfuls of the designs, it was super easy to like really streamline the process of getting in and getting through it and clearing the whole thing. Um, one of our biggest problems was we'd get to sections where the only, you know, you couldn't go from, from this house there to go back down or whatever. Right. So we'd get, you'd get to the top of one house. And if it was like a, like townhouses are here where they're adjoining, a, you know, sharing an adjoining wall and there'd be a two or three foot wall between the two rooftops. So, you know, we'd go up some, clear that one, hop the wall, clear from ah. the top down to the other one. So we're kind of, you know, constantly going up and down, up and down, up and down. It made it mm. way faster for us. Then coming back out, running around to the other side, getting the next one going up, going back down. So we were able to really start moving through these houses pretty quick and getting these areas cleared pretty pretty quickly. So then really the only running that we had to do was sprinting from one side of the street to the other. And that, you know, after after like figuring that out, like three days of clearing houses and finally figuring out like we could really streamline this process it really saved a lot of our guys, you know, obviously the, the emotional toll or the, the psychological toll of, of not knowing what's behind every single door um, was offset by the fact that we were actually able to save some energy by not having to run balls out all the time, you know, to do every single one of these houses we had, you know, we knew what the fastest route was going to be. So we'd be able to take a second, you know, get your stuff together if you had to reload or you had to fix your equipment or something broke or whatever we we were able to kind of consolidate those portions so that we could save as much energy as possible do you guys have um, any any armor while you're doing this we uh we did not so we did but we didn't there were a few portions of the uh of like steel curtain and then iron hammer i think the one after that there were a few portions of that where we actually had a tank platoon assigned to us, which was cool. Uh, first time ever working with tanks. It was a lot of fun to like watch them crash through stuff and blow <laughs> things up. Yeah. Um, but like we, we were, we were an infantry unit. We were supposed to be a motorized infantry unit, meaning we were supposed to like get in the back of Humvees and get in the back of trucks. And like, I didn't see a truck once except when it dropped us off and like would come and, and, you know, drop off ammo and stuff. We walked pretty much everywhere. Mm. So, you know, we would have the, tank platoon with us for some portions and then they'd go and, you know, they were assigned to the battalion. So they'd go and, and hit some other uh, companies or that. And then we had the cat platoon. We had cat red and cat blue, which were the uh, Humvee mounted, you know, heavy weapons, the anti-tank, the anti-armor stuff. And every now and then we would see those guys and we'd work with those guys. But for the most part, we were kind of set up with Echo, Fox and Golf, you know, set along these city sections and we were just on foot, running through the city. How long was Steel Curtain? A week, couple weeks? Uh, so I think it, I think the original portion started, I think it was October 5th, maybe, or somewhere in October. 
Major Mendoza was killed on in was November. That, so I think it was November 5th. I think it was November 5th to November I just 20 something. Um, three, three weeks on or about. Yeah, yeah, it was it was almost the month of November. Because I, I know that was the the beginning of it was essentially was him, you know, being killed, and then it was just a few days after the 16th, which was the, you know the ambush that I was in. Um, a few days after that is when like Steel Curtain officially ended, and then we started moving into the I think the the Marine Corps, you know, or the ISAF or whatever started shifting into the Iron Hammer portion of it. And no showers that whole time, right? So you're getting nice and fresh. Only, yeah, only when we got back to uh, Al Assad. So like two, yeah, two or three weeks, no shower, baby wipe baths. You know, you're, and you guys are moving as a whole battalion, right? During all of this, I mean, it's all everybody. When you're clearing these buildings, it's company movements, platoons yeah, abounding. As far as the, as far as the um, momentum of it goes that was probably one of the worst parts is, you know, us as a company. So, you know, each company had their sections and it was all laid out on somebody's map somewhere. And within that company, you know, each platoon had their section and, you know, as a, as a company, our platoons, our rifle platoons would move up pretty, we we're pretty much on pace with each other, but, you know, we'd hit a phase line and sometimes we'd have to wait at this phase line for the other companies to catch up. And, you know, sometimes it was 10 minutes and sometimes it was hours. Right. Where, you know, we're that far ahead of them for, for whatever reason, right. Maybe they, you know, if they have bigger buildings, I know there was one section where we had a school we had to clear, which took us forever. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, stuff like that, where, you know, we hit a phase line and then we're just, we know that there's more to do. I literally across the street, there's more buildings that we should be clearing, but we have to set down and, you know, set up like a, a security posture because we have to, we can't cross that phase line until everybody's ready. Because if we do, there's the potential for, you know, issues blue on blue, or there's another unit moving ahead of us going, you know, across this way or something, you know, whatever the, the case is. Yeah. So Keeps like that. You have to track. It's important though. Right. Well, and like, like Preston was saying where, you know, if you're running through that and you're, and you're, you're amped up and you're ready to go. And then all of a sudden somebody says like, Hey, we just got to wait here for them to catch up. And you're, why are we waiting? Like, you know, we can yeah. do this. Let's go do this. So That's I think the that anger was the, in the fuel right there. That's what I was talking yeah. about. Yeah. So I think that um, was like a big thing. It's like, what are we waiting for? Let's go. Were Got you, you um, moving at, real quick? I, I'm just, I'm still curious on the maneuvering. So would you be maneuvering as an entire platoon with another platoon on overwatch, like on the roofs while one so, platoon is doing this sort of up and down, they get a foothold in the next platoon. Or what does that look like? No, so we were all, uh, the way that, and I can't speak for the other two companies, but the way that our company was, was, was working is, you know, we were set up essentially online left to right, right? We all pushed off from the same thing from, say we hit a phase line, yeah. we're waiting, right? So we're at a phase yeah. line, we're ready to go. Mm -hmm. uh, we would do it uh, by squads, really. So, you know, you're whatever first platoon was doing was on them, whatever third platoon was doing was on them. And then our platoon would sure. go, yep. you know, fire teams to a house, fire teams to a house. And we just bound each other's teams. I got it. So that yeah. way you have some respite, right? You're not going house to house to house all the time, but sure. yeah, I mean, essentially it was every other house or every third house was your team. And that makes sense when you said it was online, it almost has to be. So yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to picture it in my head, how you guys were 
Oh yeah, platoon autonomy. They had their left left and right limits interlocking fields of fire. There you go. Yeah, and we were we were lucky enough, especially in that first section, like the 440 district was, I mean, almost a perfect square. So that mm -hmm. was easy one for us to like get online and track, you know, with the streets as phase lines or whatever they were using for phase lines. It was super easy for us to to move that way. And then when we got out of um, Huseba and Karablo and we started moving into like old Ubadi and stuff where that was more of a farmland area, right? The buildings were much more spread out, um, not necessarily in even lines with each other. So you might have one guy in a building way up here, but he's still technically, you know, in the line of fire for this one. So if something gets between us, then it's an issue. But we, the first, you know, week or two or so, we didn't have to worry about that at all, which was nice. Mm. Josh, you mentioned um, the ambush on November 16th, which is about the halfway point um, of Steel Curtain. Is that something you're, you can add context to, or do you want to keep moving through the battle? Yeah, yeah, if you want to, I mean, we can, I'm going to open book. If you want to talk about it, we can talk let's, about let's it. Let's do it, man. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that yeah. was what prompted <laughs> an unknown person a year ago or something to say you should check out, um, check out Josh. And it, it sounds like a pretty, I mean, it doesn't sound like a very long period of time. It was kind of the hot and heavy few minutes, right? I, so I actually have, um, so during this portion, we were lucky enough or unlucky enough to actually have a combat artist with us. Uh, Michael, mm -hmm. Michael Fay, who was one of the few combat artists that the Marine Corps had was actually assigned oh. to us or attached to us for that portion. Um, so it's really cool. So he's actually got, you know, he's got a lot of, uh, of pictures that he's done. You know, some of them are in the Marine Corps Museum, which is cool. Um, but he had a lot of photographs and actually some audio that he had recorded of that morning. No kidding. So that actually gave us a pretty good timeline. Uh, mm. in, uh, I think I have a digital copy of that on a, C on a CD somewhere. But, you know, it's like 8 o'clock or 8.05 or something in the morning where the, the firefight had already started and he, you know, got onto his recorder and, and started kind of talking his way through it. And I think we were, I want to say maybe the medevac chopper had been called in by nine o'clock. So 30, 45 minutes, I think maybe total. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't as, it, wow. it, I mean, it seems like it was a really long portion uh, of time, which I think is a, a common that's conception. A long fight, you know, yeah. for that, but but it, there was, there's a lot of stuff going on. And from start to finish, I think it was maybe half an hour, 45 minutes. And part of that is obviously afterwards, right? The consolidation and, and going back through and doing back clearing or whatever. So the actual firefight portion may have only been 10 or 15 minutes. That's, that's still, um, <laughs> that's I think still it's hard yeah, to that's explain how, yeah. how that's an eternity, right? Especially in that close quarter situation. Well, my impression is my thought, I think time slows in those scenarios. What do you think? And I think that's why it lasts longer. It's a weird I, slowness yeah. that happens. I think, and it's, and I don't think you think about it at the time, but like going back and thinking about stuff is you do a lot of stuff in a very short period of time. So mm -hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's the actual amount of time that it was, right? Like there was, there was a lot of stuff that, you know, that I did and that other Marines did that it seems like, well, when you look at it and you think about it in a practical sense of how, how quickly you could normally do some of these things, either you were moving really, really fast or time was moving really, really slow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. Well, you're not, that's the training. I mean, you're not thinking 
you get the thinking out of it and just the doing part, the react to contact. Um, what was the contact? We keep saying ambush. What was the contact? So we, when we had pushed through, um, yeah, so uh, Huseba, then we went into Carabola and what they call this HK triangle, which was this area in between the two, kind of a uh, sparsely populated area between the two cities. Um, so we'd push through all those and that was kind of the intense house to house stuff, right? Constantly going, going, going. Mm -hmm. And then we had switched to this old Ubaidi, which is more of a, a farmy area and like new Ubaidi, which was a, again, another like planned section. Uh, new Ubaidi was, was when I was referring to like, we do a lot of the going up and jumping mm -hmm. the wall and going down, like that was, was new Ubaidi. It was like apartment buildings or, or like townhouses. Like they had a lot of that in that section. And mm -hmm. the old Ubaidi was along the actual Euphrates river. If you, uh, you know, when you look at a, at a map on it, there's actually a section. If you go from Syria and you follow the river around, there's a, a section that it carves out that actually looks like a heart. And that's the old Ubaidi section that we kind of got funneled into. Mm -hmm. um, part of our AO, you know, and, and on the other side of that was an army unit. And if I remember correctly, 3-6 had actually remained in uh, Huseba and Karabala to set up uh, patrol bases there. So, you know, once we shifted out of that section, we were by ourselves. Uh, you know, not necessarily by ourselves, obviously, because there's a ton of guys in country, but like we were doing that section as a, as a battalion. Mm -hmm. So we get funneled into, you know, that section of old Ubaidi, which was great because that's where we were chasing these guys too. They also got funneled into that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, my complaint with rules of engagement uh, changing comes in, you know, at a certain point we had been told that like no more prepping buildings, right? No more, no more shooting rockets into buildings that aren't complying with the, the, rules that we gave them, right? Open your windows, unlock your doors, lift your trunks up like on your cars and stuff, right? So when when we would run into buildings that were like that and they were locked or curtains were drawn or the cars weren't open and we couldn't open them on the first try, yeah, send a law into that thing or send an AT4 into that thing. Like, we're just not going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to cut down on collateral damage, which I get. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look by it. You know, how are we going to win the hearts and minds if we're over here destroying everything? I, I get it. Um, so, so rules of engagement shifted, which meant that resupply shifted. So now we're not getting resupplied with rockets and grenades as often as we were, because we're not using them as often as we were. Mm -hmm. Um, as we're going through this, you know, this older section of farmhouses, we run into a building that was kind of half compliant. The door was unlocked, but all the curtains were drawn. The minivan that was parked next to the house was unlocked, but the back of it wasn't open, right? So it's like they kind of tried, but they, you know, <clears throat> turns out it was a ruse. Um, we didn't have any, the fire team that was actually going to clear the building was the first fire team in my squad. And they moved up to the building. They were going to pop the door, throw in a, a grenade. They didn't have any hand grenades. All they had was a flashbang because we hadn't been resupplied, so they didn't have any hand grenades. Not that that's logistics fault or anything like that. Like, you know, those guys all did yeah. a great job. Right. But they just didn't have one, and so they popped the door, threw the flashbang, let it breathe for a second. They went in, and as soon as they cleared the door, uh, they started taking fire. Mm 
Mm. And this was one of those sections where, you know, previously up into this till this point, we hadn't really run into real set prepared defenses. A lot of ours was hasty defense guys, you know, we were just running through stuff. Um, mm -hmm. This one, you know, they had the spider holes cut in the walls. They had furniture stacked up so that if, if we had come in and, you know, engaged from a standing position or like a, you know, crouching position or whatever, the furniture was going to take the brunt of that force from those rounds. Not that it would have stopped them completely, but, you know, it yeah, still would slow them down a little bit. And these guys were set up to shoot underneath that. So a lot of the uh, wounds, a lot of the, the gunshot wounds that our guys received were in the thigh or like the lower abdomen or, you know, like essentially under where our plates were going to be. Mm -hmm. So right. it took a lot, of rounds, a lot of rounds to the waist, a lot of rounds to the legs. Uh, mm. And I mean, that was the entire first fire team out. Nobody on the radio, can't get a hold of anybody on the radio. All we hear is, you know, that house is now a war zone <laughs> within a war zone. And, you know, we're trying to get them on the radio, trying to get them on the radio. Um, nothing. And we'd actually, we were lucky enough at this point to where I think other units weren't. Um, we had given all of our guys a PRR. So they all had personal role radios. So everybody in the, the company had a radio. So when that fire team went down, I could try to call them. The squad leader could try to call them. Our you know team leader could try to call them. Whatever. Yeah. Nobody's answering on the radio from, you know, that platoon. So each platoon, I was able to talk to everybody in my platoon. I couldn't talk to everybody in the company though, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, go through that. Go over to the squad leader. Him and my team leader, like we're the three of us are talking. Like we don't know. You know, we can't get a hold of them. We don't know what's going on. Um, I was sent as a runner to go talk to the. Uh, platoon sergeant, talked to him, come back, made a quick plan. And then me, my team leader and our saw gunner, because we only had three guys in the team since we were under, you know, undermanned. Um, the three of us, well, it's our squad. It's our job. So we make the rush across. Yeah, it seems like 25 or 75 yards or seven, I don't know, 75 yards or 75 feet. Uh, one of those two. 75 something. Yeah, from the <laughs> from the building that we were at to the building that they were at. Mm -hmm. uh, so we go, and I mean, we, as soon as we get there, I start yelling uh, with uh, McGee, who was actually one of the engineers that was assigned to us. Him and I made that first run, and McGee had actually taken a round in the leg on the way over there. So the original plan obviously fell to shit, too, because now there's only two of us there, and we need to figure out what we're doing with these guys. So I get over there yelling for uh, anybody essentially from our, from the fire sure. team. And as I'm getting there, like as I'm setting up on the one side of the window, close to the minivan, um, the saw gunner actually starts like comes crawling out of the building. Not, uh, hang on. The Grenadier, so Portillo, uh, at the time, Lance Corporal Portillo, comes crawling out of the building. So Mendez, who was the saw gunner, was actually outside the building still. So okay. he, I don't think he ever made it in the building, or he did make it in the building, but made it out right away. But he was outside before I got there. So it was, you know, when I get there, I'm asking him, like, hey, what's going on? Where is everybody? Like, he, you know, he, and I went to boot camp with this guy. Like, we've, right, mm. we grew up in the Marine Corps together. I mean, he looks at me and he's right. like, I have 
have no idea. So like, oh, great. It's, you know, let's try to figure it out now. So we're, we're sitting there yelling and Portillo comes crawling out of the building and he's got, I mean, just his face just covered in blood. He had taken, he wasn't a, he's not a short guy, but he's kind of short. Um, but he had actually taken a round to the forehead, you know, hit his, hit the night vision mount, hit his helmet and just left this, just a big welt on his forehead, luckily. But I mean, he, you know, was a headshot and he taken blood. So, I mean, it looked. Sure. Yeah. So that was the first thing we did was, you know, Mendez and, and I take Portillo and we take him back to, you know, where the, make that run again, take him back to where the company was. Got to set up a CCP now. Got to try to get information from him and find out what's going on. Uh, get a little bit of information. He kind of tells us where they went in the house. Cause the way, you know, the way that the house was set up, I guess. So me and, and Lucente and Rogers, who are my, uh, my team leader and, and the saw gunner, we go back across, we make it back across and we start, you know, the process of going into the house to start extricating those guys, right? Trying to find those guys, figure out where they're at, take the fight back into the house and, and get our guys out of there. While this is happening, um, the mash casualty had already gone out over the radio. So our second platoon who was attached to the tanks wasn't, you know, they weren't doing house to house stuff. They were patrolling with the tanks through this area. So they're, you know, attached to the tanks. They got the radio on the back of the tank. Like all of a sudden the mash casualty comes out and like these tanks come flying down the road. And like our guys are, you know, trying to keep up with the tanks as the tanks are going mm. like 56 miles an hour or whatever. I don't know how fast the Abrams go, but it was fast. Yeah. And <laughs> so these guys are running behind them, you know, trying to keep up and, you know, the tanks get there, which is cool, but they're essentially useless, right? Because they can't fire into this house because we yeah. still have guys in there. Mm. And they can't, you know, they can't get in between us and the house because we have to go into the house, right? So they're, they kind of just sit. And so second squad starts you're moving up on the house and starts, uh, you know, the same thing. They start firing back at the, at the enemy and they start making a plan to, to start uh, getting people out of the house. And there wasn't a whole lot of good options for us as far as how we do this, just because of the way the houses were set up. There was a, um, in front of, so if you're looking at the front of the house, there's like a, a window on the left side, there's a window on the right side and the front door is kind of like this way. So mm -hmm. you're not looking directly in the front door. You have to like get up to the thing and turn left to get into the front door. Hmm. And so there's a big like open you know window here. And then just next to that is like a carport where there's this minivan. Um, so they're getting, you know, as they get up there out in the front yard, and I don't know the distance between the house and this wall, but there's like a little retaining wall essentially. So once you get over this wall, there's nothing between you and this house. There's not a ton of space to go. Well, besides defenses inside the house, these guys had also set up firing positions outside the house. Sure. So as mm -hmm. second squad comes from the, you know, the area that they're coming from, from the tanks and they get start getting over this wall, they immediately start taking fire. Um, Javier Alvarez, who's the squad leader for second squad, immediately takes rounds in the legs. Um, so now he's, you know, on the ground in front of this house. Uh, there's a couple other guys that, you know, take, um, some fire back and forth. And, uh, so Javi, you know, got hit in the legs, hits the ground, 
now they're out there. There's grenades coming from all over the place, right? From out of the house, from over in the side area. Um, they were able to put down the guys outside that, you know, had started taking mm-hmm. them pretty easily. But now there's, there's still like grenades going all over the place. Javi actually ended up, you know, he's sitting, he can't move. His legs are, are messed up now, but so he's sitting there, grenade lands right next to him, right? Between him and a couple other guys, man, he picks it up, throws it, you know, oh, man. goes off just a couple, maybe a couple of feet from his hand, loses yeah. the hand. Luckily only loses the hand. A couple other guys, uh, some shrapnel, um, Wow. One of the team leaders from second squad, you know, shattered his uh, forearm on the one side from, from the, not from that grenade, but from grenades at various points. And I now like, it's just, it's a mess, right? Yeah. It's just a mess. We've got machine gunners, like people are just trying to get there. Cause now we've got, we've got more casualties, right? Now there's guys taking fire at the front. There's guys taking fire outside. We still have the guys inside the building. And we're, people are starting to go down left and right. You know, we're, uh, one of the machine gunners ended up uh, getting killed out front. And now we've got like corpsmen there that are trying to do as much as they can right there because we can't move. We got to try to get them set up before we can move these guys because it's, you know, stuff's happening so quick. And one of the corpsmen was in my squad. One of the corpsmen was in second squad. So both of them are there now. They both end up getting taken out by grenades. Luckily, neither of them, you know, neither of them were killed, but they're both take a, you know, a ton mm-hmm. of shrapnel and they're kind of out. Um, so, now, so, I mean, now we're, you know, we're racking up this casualty count and it just keeps right. going and going. And uh, Lucente, me and, and Rogers finally, uh, simultaneously while all this is happening, um, we're inside the building now. You know, we, we go in, we start to do what we can to locate the two guys that we haven't accounted for is Corporal Ware and uh, Lance Corporal Sandbeck. Um, go in, find them, pull Sandbeck out, go in, find Ware, pull Ware out. And I think Ware is actually the one that the machine gunner was assisting the corpsman with when the machine gunner was killed and the corpsman were injured. I think that was Ware out on the, gotcha. the front of the building and Ware ended up passing away too. So, now we've got, as far as we know, most of the people are out of the house. Well, we still got all these casualties and stuff out front. And as we know, uh, as a brand new, fresh infantry Marine, man, I want to get in there and get in the fight because the best medicine on the battlefield is fire superiority, right? Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we, we go in as we're coming out with, uh, excuse me, as we're in there with, you know, Sandvik and Ware, we go back in the building and Lucente actually ends up getting, uh, you know, taking some rounds from a spider hole in the bathroom. So now she Lucente is. So Rogers and I are out front. Okay. Well, Lucente is back in there. We got to go back in and get him. <coughs> Excuse me. So I know exactly where he is. That's, you know, not going to be too big of a problem. Go back in, grab him. As we're pulling him out, the Lieutenant passes us up. So I'm coming out. Lieutenant's going in and our, our platoon commander. Mm-hmm. So as he's going in, more gunfire, more explosions, we come out, he never comes back out. So now Rogers and I are like, okay, well, where, you know, where is he at? And Roger mm-hmm. said he never came out. So, okay, well, we need to go get him. So we go back in, get him, come back out. And that was actually the last time that I saw Rogers alive was when I told him I was going back in to get Lieutenant. So when I went back in and got uh, McLaughlin, bring him back out, and Rogers wasn't even there. 
right? It wasn't like uh, he came back out and he was, you know, down and injured or whatever. Like I never saw him again. So sometime between when I went in back into the building to get McLaughlin and when I got, you know, McLaughlin out of that building, Rogers had already been picked up and, and moved over to the CCP. So, mm. so now I got the lieutenants down, go back and, and talk to the platoon commander or platoon sergeant. who's Gunny Homer or Staff Sergeant Homer at the time, go talk to him. He says, okay, he comes with me. We grab the lieutenant. We take the lieutenant over to the CCP. And, you know, within somewhere within that time frame, second squad had kind of secured the front of the building. Most of the casualties, if not all of the casualties had already been moved over to the CCP. Stuff was kind of in that, you know, in that, that portion where it's like starting to slow down, but you're still mm -hmm. like in the middle of combat. Uh, we direct some, I ran over to where like the company commander and stuff was where the machine gunners were set up. This, this is uh, the portion I was talking about where like, it seems like I did a lot and it would, it should have taken me a long time to do a lot of this stuff. Um, but like running over to the machine gunners and, and kind of directing their fire was one of those things that I must've just done it. And it seems like it should have taken me forever because of the distance. But I mean, it was like, did it directed their fire to a certain area they ended up, you know, lighting this guy up behind a bunch of barrels of fuel, set him on fire. It was kind of a neat thing to watch. Yeah. Um, who that didn't, yeah, like, who thought that would actually happen? Right. Actually shoot the barrels. Well, I, I don't know if that, that's what set it on fire, but, you know, potentially, I guess, if you got tracers and stuff in there, you could have. Yeah. But somehow or another, that got set on fire. He was shot and then became on fire as well. Uh, and then as the, you know, get to the portion where like, okay, well, we need to finish this because we got, a, there's a lot of stuff going on. We need to go back into that house. There's still guys in there, not our guys, but you know, there's enemies in there. So it's like, again, as that fresh, you know, Marine infantry rifleman, I want to go and I want to take the fight to the enemy. I run back up there. I remember asking uh, one of the guys if anybody had any hand grenades, because I didn't have any hand grenades. And, uh, uh, Lance Corporal Ortiz, who was another guy that I went to like went to SOI with and stuff, and I know him for a long time. He like turns around, he hands me a hand grenade, I take it, and I didn't say anything to anybody else. And I right around that door into the building. Luckily, somebody was paying attention because uh, Mayfield, who's another guy, like he just followed me right in there. Um, we went right back into the building, went room to room to room to room, ended up using a grenade, ended up. Uh, taken fire from a guy that was essentially at like the back door of the hallway, um, put him down pretty quick, made it through the rest of the house, out the back door to where the guy that was on fire was at. As we come out the door and I turn to, you know, clear the outside. So I turn left and I go up, guy standing there. I, we exchange rounds, a couple of rounds. I shoot a couple of rounds at him. He shoots a couple of rounds at me. Uh, one of those rounds actually hits the bolt of my rifle a couple of rounds in the oh, magazine wow. and one round. Yeah. And one round into the bolt. Jeez. So I have a dead, dead rifle now. Luckily Mayfield followed me. So as I like turn to now get back into the building, he comes up with his rifle and, and ends up putting that guy down. Wow. And then, so we, we do that. I'm back in the building. My rifle's screwed. He comes back in as we're in the building. Uh, the logistics commander and the operations chief from right both captains 
um, from our headquarters unit are both in the building now. And, you know, they had, they, yeah, they had both come from wherever they were at in the battalion line. They had both come over to where we're at. So the logistics captain came over with some of his guys and like just a ton of ammo. Right? Ah, there we go. Mm. He, yeah. He brought rockets and grenades and mortars and all sorts yeah. of stuff. But he dismounted and ended up coming in the building with the other captain. Uh, to, they came in specifically to get us because he was, he came in to tell us that air was already on the way and they were going to level this building. So like we needed to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we met the two captains like back in the house as we're going back through and the four of us like got out and went over to the the CCP and everybody was, you know, was gone. And eventually the, uh, helicopters came and threw a couple of rockets or missiles into it. I'm not sure which ones they used and took out the rest of the house. And then we had our mortar team, which, was they did a phenomenal job. Um, I actually used a video of them as a example when I was in uh, squad leaders course, because they told me that like, I guess there's some by the book, how close mortars are supposed to be to each other to make sure that they're not like messing with each other's, you know, trajectories or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know, I remember telling the guy like, Hey, I've seen him do it closer than that. And I mean, these guys, the three, 61s that they had set up were probably within a, a three three feet of each other. I mean, a small triangle. Yeah. They had these three guns set up, and I mean, they're just dropping them in. And they, you know, at the time, I'm not sure, not quite sure the legality of of how mortars go, but it was a shake and bake, right? It was Willie Pete and high explosive. So, and they were just hanging these rounds down, and I mean, just dead on the whole time. They're just mm. constantly shifting those guns. They did a great job. But there was a, you know, behind the buildings, between the, the houses and the river was a palm grove. So, like, that's where these guys had, you know, mm. the guys that made it out of the house and wanted to retreat. Well, they were in the palm sure. grove thinking that they were, they were, you know, home free. And, I mean, these guys just did a phenomenal job of, of putting them down where they were, where they were standing. These going through and some of the pictures like the after action stuff and doing the reports and all that there's actually pictures like some of these guys thought they they thought that they were out of the fight enough that they had stopped to you know go to the bathroom and had their pants pulled down to their ankles and stuff you know so they did not expect us to continue bringing that fight to them for sure uh and after kind of after all that was set up and the you know medevacs were in and, and air was done and the mortars were done uh we did the you know, the ACE report and trying to figure out who's where. And turns out me and the squad leader were the only two left of third squad and everybody else getting on a helicopter and going back to Al Assad. Jesus, man. That's all. That's it. <laughs> then I spent, uh, then I spent two days sleeping on a pile of onions in a, in a different house. I was about uh, to was ask how cool. hard did you crash after all that? So two days is, yeah, well, not for the full. I didn't sleep the yeah. full two days. I think I had, uh, so afterwards, right, we did the, you know, my whole squad's gone. Now I get, like, attached kind of to either squad as needed. And I think for, like, two days straight, I went on just about every patrol they would let me go on. Right? If first squad was going out, I was going. If second squad was going mm. out, I was going. So, like, everyone I could get onto, I went. Um, the rifle that had the grenade launcher on it was out of commission so i had just a regular rifle so like i dropped 
half my kit, right? I just had a couple of magazines, the one in the gun, a couple of magazines in my person. I was running real slick, uh, which, you know, in hindsight, like, why the fuck would I do that? It was stupid. Right. Think, like uh... that was, but I think that was kind of the psychological thing. It's like, all right, well, it didn't happen to me yet. Like if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I was right? going to say, do you, do you think you crossed into a borderline reckless mindset there for a period of time? Yeah. I think I was taking more, probably more risk than I needed to, you know, because, you know, whether it was survivor's guilt or, or whatever it was, but yeah, that, that lasted like two or three days. And then I was kind of over it and I was tired and, yeah, spent some time sleeping on onions, sleeping on the floor. Uh, but we were there. We were probably, I think, in in Ubaidi, like in that same area, right? Within, I mean, within a couple of houses from that house for probably almost three or four days before we finally left to go back and start the next, you know, the iron uh, iron hammer phase of the operation. So, I mean, it was three or four days before we even knew or before I even knew the status of a lot of those guys because we didn't right. we didn't, didn't have contact with them. I'm sure somebody in the, the company did, but I didn't. Mm. And then so you guys had you said several more days of that particular clearance off. So when you were done with that, then you guys just what go back to some main fob refit. Before yeah, you the so next push that that. Um, the ambush and like the mass casualty event was essentially the end of our portion of steel curtain. The right. section of houses, the section of houses that we were at was really the end of our area. Not, not just mm -hmm. because of the casualty event, but because like, this was literally the last place we were going. Yeah. That makes sense. If you think about it though, I mean, you were, they, you were squashing their zone of operation and then it, that's the hammer and the anvil. And it was at the very yep. end and you got them cornered. And they're going to fight back. I mean, they're cornered, literally, fighting for their lives. So it's going to be nasty, you would think. It was nasty. Yeah, it was. And so we, you know, we were there a couple more days and set up, you know, some security patrols around the area and kind of tried to do the coin stuff with those people that, that live there. And yeah, it worked a little, it probably worked a little bit, you know. Yeah. Depends on what you think. How did you them. feel about that, doing those patrols, the coin ones going on those versus the I, kinetic ones right after that sort of ordeal? I mean, it was kind of the nice change of pace, you know, mm -hmm. I personally, I don't think that the counterinsurgency posture that the U.S. adopted was the correct one. I think there are some things that we could have done better and some things that we should have done definitely differently mm -hmm. because it's, it's hard, you know, not to go too far into it, but it, like, it's, it's hard to do counterinsurgency with the unit that just spent a week blowing up your town. Right. I, I think that, that you should be removed. And having from their it. friends die. Right. Like yeah, that's what right. I'm asking about you. Exactly. You're a, I mean, what are you, 19 or something? Yeah, Fresh 19. out of basic, fresh out of basic, uh, basic training, you're getting buddies killed. And now you're supposed to like smoke and joke with the locals because that's what coin exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's something that we should have done differently. If you're going to have a unit like ours come in specifically to do attack to clear missions, then we shouldn't be doing counterinsurgency because the potential of issues like this, where now I just spent two weeks fighting with this neighborhood and, and these guys, cousins or uncles, or who, you know, they might be related, they might not, whatever. But, you know, I don't know any different. I just assume that maybe at this point you all know each other. And so that makes me kind of a little less willing to do those things. Right. And, you know, at, at that point, we don't have 
you know, we don't have like a public affairs guy attached to us. It's just us. So like we walk through, we talk to some people, we talk to elders, whatever it is, like pet your dog and stuff. Like I, you know, honestly, like I really don't care what you think, you know, it's, it's kind of that attitude. So like, I'm not going to do any good there. Right. But, you got, but if you have a unit, if you have a unit that's designated for that, then when we go through and we, you know, we clear it, we secure it, whatever, then you can just take us out and you can bring in these people that are specialists in this. And I think closer to the end of, yeah. of the, you know, the war on terror, as far as Iraq goes, I think they started kind of realizing that and bringing in more of those, like the cultural affairs teams and the, the PIOs and what the, the lioness teams where they had the uh, female Marines actually able to go and talk with females and villages and stuff. So I think that did a lot better than having infantry guys come through, clear a, a town and then go around and talk to people like it was no big deal. Bureaucrats. I mean, I think that they need to follow up. You can't turn a hornet into a butterfly. Yeah. Well, and you can't, I mean, I guess you can't fault them, you know, when you're looking at it in terms of like economy of resources, Hey, those guys are already there. Let's just use them. But yeah, I don't, I don't think we were as nearly as effective as we could have been. I also fault, by the way, there's that mentality. It's in, I'm sure it's in Marine infantry. It's just a strong of like, yeah, I can do that. And so you've yeah. got military leaders saying, yep. yeah, we can do that job. Yeah, we can deliver rice and mosque refurbishment kits. And we can also do massive clearance operations. We can do anything. Yep. You, we don't need State Department. We don't need these people. We can do it. And it's like, well, come and, on. That's not true either. Let's focus on what we're good at. Yep. And then, you know, when we when we shifted, when we ended the uh, steel curtain portion in, in, in Ubaidi and we went back to, so we'd go back to Al-Assad Air Base, which was our main hub, right? That's where my, that's where like my stuff was, right? All my stuff that I brought with me, extra clothes, yeah. all that stuff is like at Al-Assad. That's where we could take showers that, you know, so at the end of each one of these portions, we'd go back there for a couple of days. I think after this, it was like a week. We got a week to, to sleep in the tent city and to eat at the chow hall and, you know, to take showers and use the phone, whatever. Um, and then we started the second portion of, of this operation that we were in. And that was the Iron Hammer one where we got sent out to this like town in the middle of nowhere um, called hit which when you look at it on the map it you know it's kind of a big big town and uh one side of it is like a city and the river runs right through it again and the other side of it is kind of a it's still it, i don't know i guess like a suburb where the you know there's still a lot of houses but they're more spread out it's not nearly as congested and there was this old school that actually it was the worst it actually shared a wall with a mosque like their, mm. you know the, the courtyard wall shared a wall with the mosque sure. and still you know it was an active mosque and again we had just spent like three weeks going through and f fighting through this area and now you stuck us next to um a mosque where every day at, at you know the call to prayer is right inside of our literally the speakers are right next to our you know the building that the school that we had just fortified and I mean, it was it was not the most fun uh, portion of you know being in Iraq. Like waking up for patrols and stuff is one thing, but getting woken up when you're not supposed to be on patrol and you got the call to prayer blaring because the speakers are two feet outside your window. Like, yeah, that was a pain. 
so it was nice. We had this little outpost just down the road that was OP1, which was like on the very far edge of this little little city. And that was the best place to go because it was just your platoon or just your squad or whatever. And like you were there and there was nothing around you for like a mile and a half. Did you guys know you were coming home? Did you know the date you were coming home or on or about? So did you realize at this point um, hit that you were just a few weeks out? So we did not. Um, we actually knew kind of when we were supposed to be back, but we didn't, uh, you know, we, we weren't supposed to be back to the States until something like January something. So we still, you know, by now it's November. So we, we still had almost two months or a month and a half before we would have been at, done with the deployment anyways. So I think a lot of us just assumed that we were going to be you know, in Iraq the whole time. Mm-hmm. And we were getting flown back or whatever. Um, so we we ended up just kind of going day by day, I guess. Like nobody really was like, "Oh, when are we going home?" That'd be nice. We just assumed we were going to be there the whole the whole stretch. Right. Man, I like it, man. Well, we've uh, we've taken an hour and a half of your Sunday, and I know you got two little kids running around there, so. Um, I think we can probably halt it for now. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. You, well, this is one where we could talk for – we could go for six more hours too. That's the challenge, yeah. one, right? <laughs> this is like one year into your military career. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the rest yeah. of it was pretty pretty uneventful. So. Well, there's even, not going to be a like, lot that compares to that. Uh, that was a pretty significant event there, yeah. Well, and you even like, – like Sayer had said, you know, the, the transition between – jobs right between what they require you to do in the military during that same period was was kind of weird that's why I started talking about hit when we you know when we went to hit the goal there wasn't attack to clear right the goal there was to um specifically set up so we wanted to stop obviously there had been a bunch of IEDs and stuff and a bunch of attacks in the main portion of the town so echo and golf ended up taking the city city Mm -hmm. and we were Mm -hmm. on the other side of the river um you know separated by the big long bridge across the way but we were on the other side of the river which you know had a school and a mosque and it was kind of the suburbs and the goal there was to set up a fort op you know to set up a fob to set up a secure presence to do patrols to do counterinsurgency like Mm -hmm. to, to the exact opposite of what we had just spent the last you know three or four weeks doing and it's it was a very I don't want to say it was like it was a bad thing because I think we did okay in hit. I think we we really did right. a good job at you know, we didn't have a ton of um, IEDs or attacks or anything like that. We did have some issues in some portions of of the town, but for the most part, we went in there and just did patrols every day and didn't really have any issues. And it was a weird, it was just kind of a weird thing to to explain, I guess the like how okay it was, right? How easy it was for us to to shift into that knowing that like what we we just survived what we just went through so it doesn't matter what happens now we can we're going to do just fine i think is kind of more of how we were looking at it not like not like oh this is great man i don't have to do anything but walk around all day and do these security patrols it was like hey we have we've now shown that like we're capable of doing this thing that we just did now we really didn't have a care in the world right been through the gauntlet already yeah yeah it was it was I think the worst part about hit was setting up the patrol base because, you know, it's, 
the you know the, the clay or stucco buildings or whatever and you have to we had to fortify the thing so i mean we probably filled like eight thousand sandbags before yeah. before they finally got some like combat engineers there to do the hesco barriers yeah so like yeah. we've just tons of sandbags in the windows on the walls all that stuff and then they finally got those hesco barriers around the outside of it and yeah, that was probably that the worst sergeant part. First sergeant up the ass. That's right. First sergeant getting that yeah, shit done. Just, always improving the area. Yep, just filling sandbags for days. I love hearing that. Yeah, constantly improving. Improved sectors of fire, improved security positions. That's what yeah. it's, and it's And it was, you know, I mean, I don't know who picks the fobs for those kind of things, but it was such a weird place for us to be because we have the school and then the, there was a mosque right next door, a small mosque, and we actually had a really good line of sight into this courtyard or like this marketplace area. And then the bridge that went all the way across the river to the Sharky mosque, which was this big, uh, big popular mosque out there that had these giant, uh, what do they call those minarets or whatever they're uh, called. Uh, I think so. That sounds right. Yeah. Whatever those are called. Um, as far as I know, that mosque is made, may no longer be there. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, like, who knows? Well, maybe it's a mosque. It might be a better chance it's still around. Yeah, but it was a good. It was it was a good position to be in. But like, right next door was a mosque. Right across the street was a cemetery. So like at the time, you know, we when we first got to Iraq, like ROEs was like, you see guys digging on the side of the road, go ahead and do your thing. And like mm -hmm. now you, you put our fob right next to a cemetery. There's gonna be people digging out there all the time. Like what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like, okay, well, if they're in this section, it's fine. But if they're here, it's not fine. So it's just kind of a weird, it was a weird place to put, you know, the, the, the fob at, but I guess we really didn't have a choice because it was the only place big enough. You know, it's yeah. Something weird like that. Well, and then you're there to get the situational awareness to know that it is a graveyard and that's why they're digging rather than some other person, not on the front lines who just sees a person digging on a screen. And says right. bad guy, boom, you know, because that's what the alternative is in a lot of ways, right? You're that you are the last. I mean, you are the eyes on the ground um, for everybody else. The tip of that spear, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, like I, I get asked all the time, and I, I'm sure you guys have been asked, you know, before too. But like, I get asked all the time when guys look, bring up the military or when people ask me about like the military. It's like, well, would you do it again? Probably, yeah. I think for yeah. the most part, it was good. You know, looking, but like, obviously with the military, right? Especially my second deployment was, it was so much fun, like looking back at it, right? Because we, we were a boat company. So we were in the Zodiacs. We were doing stuff in the mm. South Pacific, Australia and Korea, and like always on these boats, which sure. was cool. But at the time it was fun, but it sucked because we were always cold. Because you're <laughs> right. always wet. You yeah. Know, it's, and then, you know, we went to... Uh, like the Philippines and we were like, I think we were the first unit, the first like infantry or, or first combat unit or something like that to go to Cambodia since the end of the Vietnam war, which was kind of a cool thing. Sure. Um, you know, st stuff like that is like cool to look back at, but like when you're doing it, it's like, this is just, it's boring or it's miserable or, you yeah. know, well, you said it right the gate. Your, your comparison was before and after boot camp and how different of a person you were. On the officer side, or at least at West Point, there's not like a very clear thing. We go through a basic training, but it, it's not, it's not, not the same. And uh, so it's Neither it's a yeah. it's a longer period of time. But when I look back, when I was 18 to you know 23, 24, 25, that window, like 
totally different person. And I think in a, I think in a positive way, net positive, I'll say that. Um, I'm on the same page, man. I, I would recommend it to people. I just think it, there's so many, so many good things it can do for you. It can, it can be a negative experience yeah. for a lot, but um, I agree. It's, it's, yeah, I'd recommend it. What I, the benefit I believe is it gains, uh, it can help you gain perspective, right? And it's just by matter of being uh, with a bunch of people, not from your hometown, you know, you don't have Aunt Linda yelling at you about going to church on Sunday or something. You just get out of uh, in the environment, good, bad, or otherwise, you get out of it and get inserted yeah. into a brand new one with people of all colors, of all races, creeds, every single state, and you're supp- you're collectively doing something. And you have to figure a way to get along. And you get along by learning what makes people tick. And you uh, get along by learning what makes them get ticked off. And you only do that by getting your hands dirty with the people. And I think yep. that that, to me, is the main benefit, along with the hardship and the, what you learn as an individual and, you know, to be all you can be. And you can be that person and you can slay the fire dragon. It is possible, you know, and you're with people, the good ones that foster that out. And they know that it's possible and they they, they bring that out of you. And I to me, that's the beauty of the military. I uh, meant to mention this earlier, but we're going to get it in anyway. Um, I'm going to put your Instagram in the notes, Josh, because you did an yeah. awesome job documenting not not just the pictures, but writing about the pictures as well. I think you said it was about a year ago. Um, I did not do that. I wish I had taken more pictures and really put notes, put notes down to them and things like that. But anybody who's interested in in the Marines, deployments, Iraq, any of that stuff, I'm 100% worth checking out. It's, it's some impressive stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think I did. Um, I don't know if I started in October when we first got, I think I started it when we first got to Iraq all the way through Christmas. So like October to December, um, mm-hmm. there's almost, it's not every day, but it's pretty close to almost every day that we were there, a you know, photograph or, or something that kind of describes like this whole, the whole work up through the deployment, through the ambush, through Christmas, and then and going home. So it's like a form of a documentary. It's really cool. Yeah. All yeah, right, man. That's, it's, well, I'm uh, just, oh, yeah, I just want to say I, I flipped through them too, and I think it's great. It's awesome. Uh, these stories. Uh, thanks for sharing the story so that we could, you know, I, I just as an individual like hearing the story, right? These are things that you guys were doing. I was in college. I was. <laughs> Is it going to run out? I don't know. The Saddam statue happened yeah. in 03, like as a junior. And then this stuff's going hot and heavy. And by the way, meantime, I'm like, man, I'm also glad I'm not there. Right. Because you hear yeah, about okay. Ambar province, you know, and it's but then again, I'm also training to do it at the same time. So I feel like I was never there. Definitely never in Iraq. But I just it's like those vic- that vicarious stories. Right. To live through them and just to talk about them and share them. And that's what makes all of the 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 hardships all those hard things, the suffering, to me, the relevant point is learning from it the, and knowing uh, why, why these certain events happened and the selflessness to, um, it's all about, at the end of the day, it's about doing something for somebody else. And like sharing those stories, I think is important because we don't really, they just don't come out. You're not gonna go around just talking about it. And um, I just think there's a big benefit to, um, these are just real life experiences, you know, and a lot of them are just, they're very, uh, we're so detached a lot of ways, especially with um, no draft and all of that. So these are all real events, very important events. I mean, just that single event, when you're talking about the guy that has a grenade thrown and he throws it back and he loses a hand in the middle of all of this, 
just that that was just like a little snippet out of a big story i mean that right there alone is just a the the i don't just the wherewithal the immediacy the reaction to do a, a something like the courage to do an act like that without even thinking you know that's what I'm, that, to me that's what it's all about are those sort of actions yeah well, and then you know th- not to get too far into it but you know some of the stuff that you guys just experienced with afghanistan in august was the you know a lot of that same stuff that that a lot of guys that i served with dealt with when ISIS took over, I mean, literally places that we had just left, right? Got, yeah. You know, places that yeah. he had come through. And sure. to, so to see us, to see it happen in Iraq and then to see it again, like happen in Afghanistan and there's guys like us sitting there like what the, and there's nothing. We, we did our do. job. We thought. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's one of those things where like you look back at it and it's like, well, you did what you were supposed to do while you were there. There's not much you can do about it, but you know, uh, talking when you're talking about like interpreters and, and Iraqi army forces or Afghanistan, you know, national defense and stuff. It's like, what can we do to help those guys out? And then to be able to come back and like be kind of pissed off at the government about the way that they handle some things or the way that they do some things, but still be able to come back and say, Hey, yeah, sometimes it sucks, but, but you guys should, if this is something you're seriously thinking about, like the military is a good thing. You you're, you're going to learn from it. You can you're going to get something out of it and a lot of it is you know you get what you put in you get, you get out of it what you put into it and and i think mm-hmm. for a lot of people that's probably the right choice the only <laughs> the only advice that i would give people that are looking to get into the military is like know the job that you want to do before you go yes because if you if you go no contract you could be anything from a infantryman like like i was or you could be a cook you know, it's like y- you want to go in knowing what you want to do because yeah, you want to be able to I bring agree. something out of it. Or you yeah. could get and lucky and become army. an artilleryman. Yeah. And now the army, I think, is even, you know, if you have uh, skills or um, certifications or whatever, right, like forklift or hazmat or that kind of thing, you can actually bring that out with you. Whereas when I was in, and I think the Marine Corps might still be this way, like you don't really bring any of that with you, right? It doesn't transfer back into the civilian world. So you'd have to do all that stuff over again. So if there's something yeah. like that, especially like IT is the big thing, cybersecurity is a big thing. Like you get all these certifications when you're Air done. Force. Yeah, when, and then when you're done, you've got essentially a pipeline right into a job. Called SkillBridge. Like six months, he was an E5, six months, the last six months he moved back God. to Ohio and wore civilian clothes. He had all the IT certs, which are all regular certs that are civilian ones, you know? So they all read it. It translates. There's always that, the technical aspect, but then... No, there are. I mean, there's a combat arms penalty, but, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I still think it's worth it. It's just the experience. Um, but it's not for everybody, to Josh's point. None of it is. Hey, Marines aren't for everybody. Maybe the Air Force is for somebody, right? I told my brother, don't go. Hey, don't go Army. Don't go Marines, man. Don't do it. I recommend yeah. Navy or Air Force for you. Um, I said Navy because they have cooler, like, beaches or whatever. You know, you're going to be at two <laughs> spots. He chose... Uh, Air Force yeah, you'll stuck, be stuck in, Montana. in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, you got Montana, but it, you know it is what it is. You make it for what it for what it the experience is. But um, there is something for everybody, and it's always an option. And it, um, what a lot of people, I think, yeah, it's a lot of people choose to do it. You're talking about infantry and your high ASVAB score. Um, it was making me think about 
because you're associating dumb people with infantry, right? And I remember when I showed up at Ohio State, I didn't realize that, well, you have to, you don't get to pick your branch in, in Army ROTC. You have to rank it. That's how West Point is. And then OML determines what you get. And um, I just assumed going in that, you know, infantry would be easy to get because only dumb people go infantry. But that's what I wanted. That's all and I, I wanted. And I and I think that's the general conception is like, you don't have to be smart to, to be a trigger puller and knuckle dragon. I wouldn't tell you there are. It was not true though. Met. Like it was very hard to get, like you had to be top ranking to get it. Cause all these shooters were going for it, you know, like hot shots. And yeah. it was well, very competitive. I think that's how um, Marine Corps is too, for like OCS is, you know, to get, to get a slot as an infantry officer, you have to be, you know, close to, if not the top of your class, because there's, there's a lot of those slots, but, you have to be the best because they're relying on you to then run that rifle platoon, run that rifle company, you know, as you move up, like, you know, in order to be, I think, I don't know if it's the same in every branch, but for a long time. So the Marine Corps, right before Amos, before Commandant um, Amos, we had never had an air op be a commandant, never happened before. Mm. Cause like it was always guys that had been infantry yeah. officers. Mm -hmm. And right. I think it's still maybe it's either an official rule or it's unofficial rule where like, you're not making Sergeant major until you go to an infantry battalion. So like, if you've been a, you know, a radio or logistics or whatever, and you're a first Sergeant and you want Sergeant major, you got to go to an infantry battalion. And so you'll mm -hmm. get, you know, you get guys that come over as to be first sergeants for these line battalions and have never done infantry before. And that's kind right. of the, the mark is like, you have to be able to do this because now you're going to be one of the most highest ranking people in the, the, you know, in the Marine Corps. So you better know how to do everything, especially, you know, same thing with officers. Like if you're going to, if you're going to run an infantry battalion, which is the majority of the Marine Corps is infantry, right? That's the whole idea behind the Marine Corps is that there's the infantry and then there's support for the infantry. Right. Yeah, so like, those guys have to be the best that we can offer. And then if you look into, you know, when you're, when you're looking at like battlefield history or you're looking at tactics and that kind of stuff, like you have to be smart, you have to be able to think about it. Cause I've done the same thing. It's like, well, I don't really have to do anything to be infantry. You know, as far as enlisting goes, I just have to show up. And then yeah. there's some guys that like, they literally just showed up, but then there's a lot of, yeah. not that I'm not that I'm one of these guys, but there's a lot of guys that you run into in the infantry, especially that are just, so well-spoken and you know super right. super intelligent guys like you know they're over here playing chess and we're still playing checkers and and all they're <laughs> doing is they're just doing it because they like to do it yeah and that's I the mean, misnomer i agree that's what that's the one thing that i think we all know what we're talking about that nobody else truly gets that element of it right it's real hard to explain there's a lot of cultural hurdles to get over but like the uh, weird, unique intelligence, at least that I found in the infantry, was very special. And just active duty in general, let's say. It's not even just infantry. Maybe it's all I know is infantry and then combat arms collectively. Right. right. But um, that would be my take on it. Just the everyone's kind of. And it is true to be in the in 100 people, only one people are doing it. So you're going to have to be a little bit of an oddball, I think, to <laughs> do a job like that, especially time of war, you know news isn't pretty when you were enlisting um so i think that's the camaraderie where we can have these conversations where we don't we don't even know, know each other at all like i know that you and preston met but this is one of those things maybe i don't know if anybody knows that or not but like yeah we just 
got on this call today and that's it. And we just go at it and just start talking. Um, and that's probably, I guess that's the vibe. That's what I'm feeling. I like it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely different. Like going to a, well, and I don't know if, if you guys go to like the, the Legion or like the VFW or anything, like I don't really frequent those very often, but you know, it's one of those things where, and I think that's a generational thing, like for our generation, it's not yeah. really something that we, we do yeah. as much, right. but it's definitely different, like going to meet people for the first time or like talk to people for the first time in any other setting than it is like when it's other guys that have been in the military or even like now, you know, with my current job, like even law enforcement, it's like, it's one of those things where there's some stuff that just, you just automatically have some kind of connection. It's super easy to talk about and it's, you know, doesn't matter if, if, if I've ever actually met you in person or, or been in the same unit or, or anything like that. It's like, we're, there's something, cause we both know there's something there that we, we both have the same kind of experience or, you know, whatever it is. Sure. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, Josh, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Thanks for yeah, all you've done and, and continuing to do with, with DNR and hopefully we get a chance to talk again soon. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know guys. If, especially if you come back to visit family or whatever, let me know. For sure. Cool. Yeah. All right, Thanks Josh. We'll see ya. All right guys. See ya. Hey, if you've got an extra 16 seconds, it would really mean a lot to me if you left a review for war stories. I read every single one of those and we'll do our best in coming episodes to maybe shout some of those out just as a way of saying thank you for taking the time, but either way, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.